sincerity and turn to Christ do have the forgiveness of their sins through him. That's our comfort now as we begin to worship God by listening to his word. Let's do that now then, turning to our text this morning, which comes from 1 Kings 21. First Kings 21, and we'll read that chapter. First Kings 21, beginning in verse 1. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give, it, give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then, let him take out, then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he is gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall the dogs lick up your own blood." 
Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin." And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what, it, what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on these things, let's sing together from Psalm 109, stanzas 1 through 3 and 6 through 8 jumps out from this imprecatory psalm that we, we just sang, something I actually never noticed before either, is you see in this psalm that the tension between someone who loves his enemies and prays for his enemies while at the same time praying for justice. You see in verse 8, may they receive payment from, their Lord, from the Lord for their injustice. But verse 2, they rave without cause and, and abuse me in return for their love. For my love, they accuse me. I pray for them, yet they reward my good with evil. They reward my love with hatred. And that is the Christian life, just as it was for David, as it was for all the saints of the Old Testament, praying for justice, longing for justice, and yet loving their enemies while here on earth. That's what this text is certainly also about, the tension between the call, the cry for justice, and also the need to forgive and love those whom God has forgiven. So, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is indeed a hard chapter to think through and to work through. It's hard because it brings us face to face with the kind of evil and injustice that we all know exists in this earth And yet, we find it very difficult to think of. This chapter reminds us of how ugly this evil is, but it also causes us to begin to think of how widespread this kind of evil is, how pervasive these stories of injustice are on this earth. It makes you sick to think about it. It makes you want to turn your eyes away and and think about something else, something more cheerful. But can you imagine how many people in the world right now are crying out to God for justice, just like Naboth did just this past week? 29 Christians in Egypt killed on a bus. Their their killers are still at large. They went in, they shot everyone to pieces, including children, and ran off. And they they have not yet been found. 
Last week, of course, in Manchester, England, a bomb at a children's concert. And some of the, the minds that planned that attack are still at large. How often people in this world cry out to God for justice. This story is especially sick because of how trivial the motive was for killing as well. I'm sure you noticed that yourself. It was just a field. In fact, it was just a vegetable garden. And it leaves you wondering as you read a story like this, where was God in Naboth's death? Where was was God when the stones were flying at Naboth and crushing his skull as his wife and children were probably looking on? Where was God when the entire town betrayed Naboth and then swept the entire story under the rug to be never mentioned again? Where is God when innocent men and women and children are abused, killed, taken advantage of, brutalized, and sometimes slaughtered as Naboth was slaughtered by people who very often in this world, on this side of eternity, do not face any justice and are sometimes even respected and honored by society. How can we claim that God cares when he lets things like this happen. That's surely what the text causes all of us to wonder. Well, I don't think we'll ever be able to do full justice to that question on this side of eternity. But chapters like this do give us reason to keep crying out to God, to keep waiting for God's justice, to keep holding on to the promise that that justice will eventually come. And it's so important that we do keep crying out to God. That's what this chapter is here to cause us to do. To stop crying out would probably be the easier thing to do. To just forget about the, just, the, the injustice that happens. To stop thinking about it because it's unbearable to, to let it sit and weigh on our hearts. It's easier to stop crying out, but the right thing The thing that this chapter calls us to keep doing is to keep hoping, keep praying, keep crying out to God. Even the saints in Revelation 6, even in heaven, still keep crying out to God. How long, O God, till you pay our blood with vengeance? So let's work through this text of God's word this morning and and consider then what God would teach us through this. This is Ahab's second palace. He had several others as well, and and perhaps that's also mentioned to highlight the the injustice of what happened here. It's not even his first palace. It's a second home. This is, so to speak, his cottage country, and he's still willing to kill a man for a vegetable garden. The commentaries debate why it matters that he wanted, that the text mentions that he wanted this field for a vegetable garden. Some people say maybe there's, there's some kind of symbolism happening. But I think the author tells us this just to highlight how trivial the motive was for taking Naboth's life and how sick the whole story really is. He and Jezebel had the man stoned to death for a stupid little vegetable garden. That was his motive for having him killed. Now it's important also that we understand that Naboth, for his part, couldn't have sold the field to to Ahab. He wasn't just being stubborn. It wasn't just that he had the right to keep the field. He had the duty from God to keep that land as his inheritance. God had allocated the land under Joshua, 
And, and several times he explicitly forbade the permanent sale of land. You could lease it out for a period up to 49 years, but you could never sell it permanently. And, and there were reasons behind that law. The idea was to keep the rich from accruing more and more land and, and ultimately taking away the means of income for the poor. And, and of course, even... In, even today, if you're in the business world, you know that these things happen. The rich can take away not just the possessions of the poor, but the very means of income from the poor. And these laws in the Old Testament were designed to help prevent that from happening. The, so the land, of course, being an agricultural place like Alora, the land was the, pr- the people's primary means of, of income. And so under, under Joshua, God forbade that permanent sale of land. So Naboth then was bound by, by oath and by, by his faith and his conscience to refuse Ahab's off, offer. He wasn't just being stubborn or pig-headed. He couldn't sell the land. For all we know, he might have even wanted to sell that land. He, he had been offered the money or even a better piece of land. But this was the land that God had given him, and he couldn't sell it. It's important to recognize that. And that's where the problems then began for Naboth. It was an act of faith, and ultimately, this is an act of persecution against Naboth for his faith. Ahab was, was clearly angry with, with Naboth for not selling. He either didn't, didn't know about the law that Naboth couldn't sell it, or maybe he knew about it and he just didn't care. He figured, why is Naboth so concerned about an ancient law from God's word? We're in a different world after all. I'm king. I said you can sell it. Isn't that all that matters? So Ahab, we, we read, goes back to his, his palace, vexed and sullen, the text says. And it's interesting for his reputation, which he did have as a powerful king, a king who had strengthened the military and expanded Israel's borders and rebuilt the economy in significant ways. You can't miss how how small a man Ahab still is and how small a man you see him in this chapter. He lays down on his bed and turns away his face and refuses to eat food. He's like a little toddler throwing a temper tantrum, and he needs his wife to come in and counsel him. And all of this for what? For a silly little vegetable garden. And you can immediately tell, again, we've seen this before, you can tell who wears the pants in this royal family. When Jezebel hears about him vexed and sullen, laying in his bed, crying because he doesn't get his garden, she says to him in verse 7, "'Aren't you the king of Israel?' And you can almost see her just shaking her head at her husband. And you get the sense that she really didn't understand why he didn't just take the field. That was her way of, of operating. It's like it never occurred to her that you, you can't just take things when you want them when you're queen. Maybe you could get away with that in, in Tyre, which is where she came from. She grew up as, as the princess. And she had probably never seen her daddy take no for an answer from anybody. That was the way things were entire but this is Israel and so she seems almost shocked at the fact that Ahab didn't just take it isn't that what it means to be king you can just take what you want that's what she she figures and so Ahab for all his faults all the things we hate Ahab for 
you can still see he's raised in a covenant environment where he knows something still of God's law. He has some reservations. His wife Jezebel apparently has none at all, and she doesn't seem to understand why he doesn't just take the field. So she, she shakes her head and, and her, words send, her words to Ahab send chills down your spine. She says, there, there, go and get something to eat. I will take the field from, from Naboth or I will give you the vineyard of Naboth. So verse 8 says, she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. So you can see who's ultimately responsible, whose name is on those letters, whose seal is on those letters. And she sent letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. Set two worthless men opposite him. Let them bring a charge against him, saying, You've cursed God and the king. And boom, you've got him stoned. That's how easy it is to get rid of someone you don't like. Now we need to notice that Jezebel sent this letter to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth. It says so explicitly and it says so twice in the text. And it's good to understand this. Jezebel didn't do this on her own. She didn't even do this just with the help of those two worthless men. The entire town was complicit in this. She sent it to the elders and the leaders. And these are people, it says, who lived with Naboth in the city. And that's Probably the most unbearable aspect of this whole story. Naboth wasn't ambushed by members of the mafia. It wasn't the secret police that came and took him away at night. No, he was betrayed by the elders and the leaders of the city and people who knew him, who chose to follow Jezebel's letter rather than stand up for what they certainly knew was right. Now, we don't know why they made that choice, to betray Naboth. Maybe they hated Naboth themselves. It's possible wicked men hate the righteous. And so, so that could certainly have been the case. But we don't know whether these elders hated Naboth or whether they were just genuinely afraid of Jezebel. We don't know whether they were happy to carry out the order or whether they did it against their better judgment. Maybe they actually felt horrible as they carried out this order. But what matters is that they still carried it out. You don't read of any protest, any attempt to save Naboth's life. Whether they hated Naboth or not then, in the end, really doesn't matter. They knew exactly what they had to do, and they chose not to do it. Maybe they felt they had their own families to think about. It's not worth standing up to the government, and so they let it go. So whether they're happy to do it or not, we read that they did exactly, and it even says they did exactly what Jezebel said, word for word. And the text repeats the entire order, the entire letter, word for word, in order to emphasize this. And that's what makes this such a horrible story, because the injustice in all of this is just unspeakable. The very people who are supposed to be standing up for Naboth and defending justice They orchestrated Naboth's death together with Jezebel. So the entire town is complicit in this righteous man's death. As he was defending himself against the accusations that were being thrown against him that to him would have just come out of nowhere. He'd never seen these worthless men before. He must have looked around at all his fellow townspeople and 
and knew that they knew better than what was being accused than what he was being accused of. And he must have looked at them and, and hoped that one of them who knew him well would stand up and say, This man would never do this. But apparently all of them turned their eyes away and let the judgment be carried out. So Naboth is led outside the city and it uh, He's led outside the city, his wife and children presumably behind him, crying out. And he must have still, even at that point, hardly believed what was happening to him. We can only imagine how he was still, at that moment, still desperately pleading with people, this is not who I am, you know I didn't do this. But nothing, he said, made any difference. And in the end, he was tied up, and the stones were thrown at him, and his righteous life is smashed away. And you notice this whole thing was done with a deeply religious aura around it. Jezebel had them proclaim a fast, a very religious thing to do. She knew how to use the people's religion in order to accomplish her goals. She had them accuse Naboth of cursing God and the king. So he was made out to be a traitor to the people's religion and a traitor to their country. So there's a deep show of, of religion and a deep show of patriotism behind Naboth's death. Already the victors were beginning to write the history. And she had them get two witnesses according to the law of God. So it shows that Jezebel knew the law of God. And they had Naboth dragged outside the city, also according to the law of God, someone who blasphemes had to be dragged out and then stoned. And so it was all a very religious show. And it was all, of course, a horrible sacrilege and an insult to God. Well, when it was all over, they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned, he is dead. Just like a a gang leader, she keeps herself still at a distance. She wasn't there when it happened. She only wants to hear about it so she can go and tell Ahab. She's she's free of any, any guilt as far as the law goes. And so as soon as she heard it, she says to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And that's exactly what Ahab goes ahead and does. And you notice Ahab didn't ask any questions. He obviously knew that this wasn't some, some sudden coincidence that Naboth was suddenly dead. He knew exactly that, that Jezebel had been behind this. But he probably figured that's her business. That was her decision. I didn't do it. I'm not guilty. And so he goes down to take possession of the vineyard. But when he does, he makes it as clear as day for all of us and before God's eyes, that he is just as guilty as his wife. Well, sadly, brothers and sisters, this is the world that we live in. We all know Naboth is only one of thousands whose innocent blood has been spilled by their own people for reasons that, that can only be explained by those people themselves, whether it's hatred or fear of the government or fear of standing up for what is right. But this is the kind of injustice you see in this world every single day and throughout the centuries. It's the kind of injustice that makes us sick to the stomach, that makes people, many people conclude that there is no God. Virtue in distress and vice in triumph has made atheists 
of many men, as the saying goes. And most of these names of these innocent people in history have never been recorded like Naboth's name was. They don't get memorials, and they never on this side of eternity get to see justice. In fact, in in 2 Kings verse 9, a few chapters later, when Ahab finally is punished, we discover that Naboth's sons also ended up getting killed somewhere in this process. Maybe they were killed right then and there with Naboth. It's possible. Maybe it was years later. Maybe they tried to speak out. They tried to organize some kind of campaign to, to bring justice for Naboth. And maybe the government decided it was time to take their lives as well sometime years later. Or maybe it was a preemptive strike by the government. They just decided it was best to keep these people uh, quiet by killing them now or killing them secretly later. So that's where Naboth's story and his family's story, his wife and children's story also ends. The truth gets buried and the people decide to move on. Naboth's blood soaks into the ground And before long, it's gone, and all the evidence is buried. Ahab gets his field. A new garden is being built next to the palace. And to everyone's eyes, it looks like progress. No one would remember who used to own that land, except for God. And that's what we read in verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to Ahab, king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone to take possession. Notice God calls this vineyard the vineyard of Naboth. doesn't matter if there's a sign in front of it now saying it's the official palace garden. doesn't matter what kind of documents Ahab might have. God knew whose land this was. And for God, this was and would always remain Naboth's vineyard. And so the elders in the leader's town... The elders and the leaders of the town, could, they could listen to Jezebel. They could burn all her letters. They could try and bury the story. They could, the local newspaper could publish a good explanation for why Naboth had died. And then the story could be buried. It would never come up again. But at the end, at the end of the day, no injustice, not even the smallest injustice ever escapes God's eyes. Even if nobody is left on earth pleading Naboth's cause, God in heaven does not forget it. Well, here in the West, the thought of God being an avenging God can sometimes make us uncomfortable. You'd much rather think about God as a God of love. And so we sometimes wonder what to do with the God that we find in the Old Testament or the God that we sing about in some of the imprecatory psalms. There, there are verses there that we might rather skip. Let me give a couple. Verse, De- Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, God says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their, when their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Isaiah 1, verse 24, Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies, and I will avenge myself on my foes. One more, Nahum 1, verse 2, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Well, here in the West, verses like these, a God like this, bring us before 
or verses like these bring us before a God that we might well be uncomfortable with. But to the Naboths of this world, those verses, those verses show an avenging God for which they long. And for the Naboths and the hundreds and, and thousands even of others who experience these kinds of justices, that truth is a dearly precious truth. God sees the blood of the innocent. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't forget it. Their cause, their cause is always before him. We think of uh, Abel as he was killed by Cain and his blood went into the ground. And, and even in the New Testament, we still hear about the blood of Abel crying out. Their cause is always before God. He still has his mind fixed on seeing justice done, even after everyone else wipes the injustice from their memory and forgets that incidents like these have ever happened. And that's the message then that God brings to to Ahab through Elijah. Verse 19, You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your blood. Now I can't explain for you why God didn't intervene while Naboth was being killed. God certainly could have, but He didn't. And he didn't for reasons that only God knows. But he did see. And we see here his absolute commitment to one day avenge Naboth's blood. And we can't explain why God allows so much evil to happen in this world. To be confronted with it when you really think through it, it does sicken the soul. It does cause us to question God's goodness. We know that what happened to Naboth was wrong and demands justice. And our human hearts instinctively long to see that kind of justice. And we know that there are hundreds, thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, just like Naboth, whose lives were ripped away unjustly by the very people who were supposed to be there to protect them. We would prefer it, of course, if God had stepped in and intervened at the time to prevent that injustice from ever happening. But we know God didn't for his own reasons. Instead, God promises us that he will repay. He doesn't tell us why he's allowed evil to go on for as long as he has. Perhaps there, it's there in Paul's words in Romans 1 that his patience is meant to lead people to repentance Perhaps it's also found in the fact that really all of us are far more guilty than any of us have imagined. That all of us are worthy of that kind of justice. And perhaps God delays justice to the worst of sinners to remind us how badly we ourselves also need forgiveness. But one thing we do know, and we are assured of it, that He sees all injustice and He will fully repay every injustice that has happened on this earth. He doesn't promise us that He will always protect us from evil people, but He does promise us that He will always carry out justice for us, even if everyone else is determined to look the other way and to forget that it ever happened. God sees. God never forgets. God will right every wrong. The blood of the innocent matters 
to God. So Elijah brings that message to Ahab as he's there in Naboth's field, maybe signing the papers, maybe hiring some new gardeners, maybe planting something himself. And Ahab sees him and he asks, Have you found me, O my enemy? Maybe as he was asking that question, he was already looking around for the security guards. Don't forget he had been hunting for Elijah for for years already at this point. But Elijah responds, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. There it is again, in the sight of the Lord. We're reminded yet again, God sees all that happens. Everything that we do, whether we ourselves are aware of it or not, is before the face of God. The Bible often talks about the fear of God. And, and the fear of God is that, that fearsome and, and acute knowledge that everything we do is before God's face. He sees it all and He never forgets any of it. It's a scary expression that Elijah uses of Ahab that he had sold himself to do what is evil. He would given himself over to evil. He had traded himself in, you could say, And that's what happens when we sin, when all of us sin. Whenever we choose to do evil, we we are making ourselves, as Paul says, slaves of sin. And apart from God's grace, that slavery can ultimately come to a point where we are so given given over to sin as Ahab was that no sin is too great anymore to undertake. And notice, Elijah holds Ahab guilty and totally culpable for what he himself didn't do. He himself didn't orchestrate the death of Naboth. It was all Jezebel's plan. Ahab never officially approved of it, but he did implicitly approve the moment he complained to Jezebel and then the moment that he went down to take possession of that vineyard. Jezebel might have been the one who carried it out herself, But Ahab, God recognizes, is the one who's ultimately responsible. He proves that he is just as guilty as his wife. And so Elijah came with a message of God's judgment. Ahab and his entire household would be burned up, destroyed, and cut off. And notice that that in verse 22, they would ultimately be punished not only for the evil that they did to Naboth, but also, you notice, for the sin that they led Israel to commit, for the idolatry. You wouldn't expect this to be the place where God brings up the idolatry because the death of Naboth is in the forefront here. But God also does not forget that, and He brings that up just as much as the murder of Naboth. To God, leading Israel to worship other gods is at least as great a sin as what Ahab did to Naboth. We're reminded again that God's ways are higher than our ways. We see the injustice against Naboth and our hearts cry out for God to to carry out justice. We see people being led into idolatry and into other sin. And oftentimes our emotions aren't there. We don't consider much of the dishonoring of God's name. We consider very much of the violating of our human nature. God sees both as a gross violation of his justice and he punishes both you might not be able to measure idolatry in terms of the loss of human life but god values the glory of his name the honor that he's rightly due above everything else 
And so Elijah goes on in verse 23, he says, Of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel, just as she had intended for Naboth, for his body to be consumed by wild animals. Exactly that would ultimately happen to her. Well, this is the Lord's judgment against Ahab. And brothers and sisters, this ought to be a comfort to you and me, and to anyone who's seen or experienced injustice in this world, especially if they've seen oppressors get off scot-free, as it was the case with Naboth. So many people in the world have never seen or heard of a God like this who carries out justice against evil oppressors, who defends the poor and the oppressed. You think of, in India, the the Dalits, the the untouchables, who, who are treated like dirt by the people. They're raped, they're beaten, they're often killed, and they're never promised any justice at all for what happens to them. In fact, their gods teach them that what they are suffering is the result of their own sins in a former life. Their gods tell them they must bear it, and then perhaps in a future life, they'll get a second chance. Their gods are not concerned with their justice. Slaves in Rome were never promised any justice by their gods. Atheism offers no justice at all to the abused and the oppressed, least of all to its own victims, because the victims of atheism are its means of progress. The survival of the fittest is what brings the species forward. There's no justice coming in any future life in atheism. The millions of children in our country lost to abortion have never ever been given the chance to even hope for justice. And the few who survive being mentally handicapped or otherwise disfigured because of the attempt to abort them, they are also taught that they ought not to hope or pray for any justice. What was done to them was right and fair, done in the name of freedom and women's rights. And in fact, the only sin that was committed there was that the process wasn't finished properly. There is no promise of justice for such people. But we don't even have to look outside the church, do we? Even within the church, how many children have experienced injustice at the very hands of the people who were supposed to be defending them and even shepherding their souls? The Roman Catholic Church in Australia just a few months ago released its statistics. Almost 5,000 children abused by priests just in the last 35 years. Many of them were ignored or worse, even punished for trying to report that abuse. Well, the statistics, the statistics aren't available here in Canada, but we can certainly imagine that a very similar story can be found here. And not just in the Roman Catholic Church, but certainly in Protestant and also in Reformed churches as well. It's unbearable to think of the abuse being carried out by leadership within the church, done in the name of Christ, and the very victims being ignored, silenced, or even punished in order to protect the reputation of those people. It has certainly happened, and undoubtedly, injustice like this continues to happen even within the church. So many people then... People who are made in the image of God are robbed of any hope 
any promise of justice. They don't know of a God who will carry out justice for them. They're never promised, even often within the church, that God will eventually give them justice. But God will and God does. We should never, ever shy away from that truth because an avenging God makes us uncomfortable. He is a God of love, but He is also a God who is a consuming fire. He will punish His adversaries, beginning with those in the church. And that is a precious truth, and a truth that we should hold on to for dear life and proclaim it as loud as we can, to the whole world. We should never be ashamed that we worship a God who will carry out justice. God forbid that He should ever be anything but perfectly just. We may, not wonder, or we may wonder why He does not intervene any sooner, but we ought to keep crying out to Him to carry out that justice one day, to bring the justice that He promises us that He will bring. So that's the message that Elijah brings then to Ahab. God will come with justice for what He did to Naboth and for what He did to the honor of God's name. But then verse 27 brings us to, to a surprising twist. In this story, 1 Kings 21, verse 27, When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. I've mentioned before, people are amazingly complex and mysterious. And the book of Kings is very honest about that reality. And that's what we see now again with Ahab. Up till now, he's consistently done evil his entire life long. And verse 25 tells us there were none who had sold themselves to do evil like Ahab had done. And yet Ahab, surprisingly now, when you might least expect it, he shows some signs of repentance. And here's the the amazing thing, and and I'll be honest, it makes me uncomfortable, and, and I imagine it makes you uncomfortable as well. God responded to that repentance with grace. You can hardly believe it, and you find yourself almost wanting it to not be true. This man doesn't deserve God's grace. How can God show mercy to him after the lack of mercy that he showed to Naboth? What about God's justice? And you get the sense that Elijah probably felt the same way because God actually addresses this to Elijah in private. He never tells Elijah to even go and tell Ahab about his grace. He just goes to make sure that Elijah knows about God's grace. He mentions it to Elijah then, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Elijah must have felt a little bit like Jonah felt when he was told to go and preach to the the evil, torturous people in, in Nineveh. And this text doesn't tell us what Elijah's response was, but I suspect that if it had been me instead of Elijah, I would have been just as upset with God as Jonah had been upset with God. How could he show mercy to Ahab after all that Ahab had done? Well, there's, there's three things we should observe about this repentance and God's response. First, we need to understand that no sin and no amount of guilt are too much for God's grace if He chooses to give it. Now, hearing that might rightly make us wonder, well, what then about 
God's justice. If no sin is too great for his mercy, what room is left for God's justice? If Ahab gets a chance to repent, then what about the justice that Naboth deserves? Does this mean that Naboth will not get that justice? And how then is this fair to Naboth? Well, here's what we need to understand as Christians then in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because only the gospel can make sense of the absolute perfect justice of God and yet the abundant mercy that God also shows to sinners. No sin will ever go unpunished. But to those who repent, that punishment is borne by Christ. Now still we might hear that and we might think, yeah, but is that really fair that, that Ahab gets to get, get off scot-free while Christ bears the punishment? Don't the victims still get ripped off by that kind of justice? Well, the answer is no, they don't get ripped off at all. They get their full justice. And if they even knew the full extent of the suffering that Christ bore, they wouldn't want to add to any further justice. Their oppressors, if they have repented, if they have received God's mercies, their oppressors have died. Their oppressors are counted together with Christ. And that sin is then punished fully to the full extent in Christ. And so it will never happen then that that two saints will meet in heaven, a victim and an abuser, and the abuser will say to the victim, Ha! I got away with it. Such a thing could never happen because that would be the old man speaking. And that old man, if, if he has been united with Christ, that old man is dead. He no longer exists. And he will spend, the new man will spend eternity in heaven knowing fully what Christ had to do to get him uh, to be saved. In heaven and on earth, there are, or in heaven and on the new earth, there are only one, there will be only one kind of people broken, contrite, forgiven sinners. People who know how undeserving they are. People who know what Christ had to go through in order for them to be saved. And who hate everything that they used to be. And who owe, and who know that they owe, an eternity of praise to God for the fact that they are not in hell forever. That's the gospel. The perfect justice of God. The abounding mercy of God towards sinners. And that's why we can do like the psalmist does and pray for justice, pray for God's vengeance, cry out to God like the saints in heaven for God to avenge our blood and at the same time pray for our enemies to repent and pray for God to show them mercy, no matter how horrendous their crimes might have been. If Christ has chosen to take their punishment on himself, then they will have died together with Christ. And we cannot then hold it against them that Christ bore their punishment in their place, because we know that Christ did the same for us. And and God's word to, to Ahab here then reminds us that our sin against God's honor, our idolatry in God's eyes is as great a sin as any sin that might be committed from one, between one man and another. And so that knowing that enables us then to pray for God.
God's justice, to pray for vengeance, that God would punish our oppressors, that God would bring justice, and yet at the same time forgive even the greatest offenses from those who have, been, who have found their life in Christ. So that's the first thing that, that this repentance teaches us. Secondly, this, this, this repentance from Ahab also teaches us that when God offers forgiveness, He means it, even to the worst of sinners. We can sometimes believe the gospel and yet still think that it can't possibly be for us because our sins are too great and we still feel that God is angry with us. We are not worthy of the grace of the gospel. But to think that way, of course, is to profoundly misunderstand what the gospel is. Nobody is ever forgiven because they're worthy of God's mercy. As long as you are still alive then. God's offer of the gospel is for you, and it extends to the worst of sinners. If that's true for Ahab, that's certainly true for any one of us. And then thirdly and lastly, unfortunately, this episode also teaches us about the reality of false repentance. And that's what you ultimately see in Ahab. He did repent to a certain degree. He was sorry for what he had done, because he recognized God's judgment against him. And so he repented to a degree. He humbled himself before God. But you see very quickly in the next few chapters that it wasn't long before he once again abandoned that so-called repentance and went back to living the same evil life that he had been living before. Well, Paul speaks in, in 2 Corinthians about the difference between true godly grief and repentance and temporary worldly grief. It's possible, it's entirely possible to feel sorrow, to feel bad for sin that we've done, and even to, to do some kind of penance for the sin that we've done without actually being changed at all inside. Ahab did feel bad. He was sorry. He was sorry enough even that God postponed his judgment as a result. But even though Ahab was sorry, you discover his ultimate allegiance to himself never changed. He was still serving himself as God. And so in the end, Ahab never really did anything more than feel bad. He never gave Naboth's field back. He never had Jezebel punished for what she had done. He never changed at all. So there are only two options when we are faced with God's judgment and God's call to repent. Either, and either way, we will have to die. Either we will die with Christ finding ourselves counted with Christ and dying to our old selves now, or we will ultimately die forever in hell. Those are the only two options that exist for any sinners anywhere. And so in the next chapter, we see Ahab end up returning to his old former self, proving that his repentance was only short-lived and superficial. He refused to give up being the same old stubborn Ahab. And in the end, Naboth's blood would be fully avenged and not in Christ. He would be avenged by the eternity of hell and suffering that Ahab would ultimately face. So rest assured then, God's justice is far worse than anything that you and I could ever 
come up with. That's why Scripture tells us to leave vengeance to God. He can do far worse than even the worst thing you might desire to do to your oppressors. Not only were Ahab and Jezebel's bodies ultimately eaten by the dogs, as Elijah had warned them, but far worse, they are still, even now, thousands of years later, enduring the wrath of God. And it's still only the beginning. And in the final resurrection, their bodies also will rise, but not rise to be in heaven but, or on the new earth, but only to begin a further eternity of bodily suffering at the hands of God. God sees to it that the blood of the innocent will be avenged. But even though God forsakes Ahab here because Ahab forsook God, God's mercy still does shine through this passage. He loves to show mercy to sinners. He takes a word of repent. He takes our repentance at our word. If we confess our sins to God and and turn to Christ, God does take us at our word. If you feel God's judgment against you, if you feel like you are like Ahab, being prepared for an eternity of judgment, then don't let the sun go down on this day. He means his offers of grace. If he calls you to repentance, repent, and he takes that repentance at its word. Well, there are obviously lessons in a chapter like this also for the office bearers among us. Naboth was killed ultimately because the elders didn't do their part. They didn't obey God's word. They didn't defend God's justice. And those same elders were just as complicit in his death as they were also in the apostasy and the idolatry in Israel. And so we're about to witness the ordination of three men as elders, and this chapter is a sober reminder of the utmost importance of the task to lead God's people in righteousness and to defend God's honor and God's truth, even when we are afraid to do so, even when we don't feel like doing so. And for the deacons, too, there are profound lessons in a chapter like this. God shows himself again and again as a God who knows the cry of the poor and the oppressed, even when no one else hears their cry. And that's the task of the deacons, to have ears that are sensitive to that cry, that are tuned in to the cry of the poor and the needy, to be able to show the mercy and compassion of God to those who need it in practical, earthly ways. So let the office bearers here be reminded of the sacred task that they have to defend the truth of God and His justice and to attend to the cry of the poor and the helpless. It is a very sacred calling. And the prayers of the, the needy and the oppressed will be answered in part by the work of these men. So then, carry it out, and carry it out with the fear of God always before you, and with the mercy also of God always on the forefront of your mind, and always weighing them on your hearts. And then for us as congregation, let us also receive and honor the work of these men, and help them to carry it out for our own good, and for the good of God's ultimate glory. Amen.